Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist feminist podcast that knows feminism is for everybody. <laughs> Today we have Zoe, Laura, Kellen, and Jules. Today we're going to be doing a tribute episode to Bell Hooks, as everyone listening probably knows, especially because we also talked about it on the podcast. Um, Hooks passed away on December 15th of 2021. So today we're going to talk about her life and her work. Um, she was a scholar and an organizer who wrote about intersections of race, gender, and class, primarily, amongst other things. Um, and has written truly an unbelievable amount of books and given so many um, lectures and speeches that are like transcribed as well. So this will in no way be a comprehensive overview of all things Bell Hooks. <laughs> Laura's giving the evil eye. Um, it will be us talking about some of our faves and the impact her work of her work, particularly the impact on us, of course, because we're the ones talking, but we urge you to go read more and we'll kind of be making suggestions for what to read as we go, but just don't add us. If we forgot your faves, there is simply no way to cover all of her work or do her a full justice in an hour, but we're doing our best. Thank you so much. (laughs) Get off our dick. (laughs) Our collective dick. It's funny that it's our singular dick. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay, I don't know why that made me laugh so hard. I'm so glad. (laughs) So some background on Bell Hooks to start. Um, Bell Hooks was um, her pen name and was a pseudonym for her birth name, which was Gloria Jean Watkins. She chose the pseudonym, which was her great grandmother's name, um, because she really wanted to honor her legacy. She chose to spell it with all lowercase letters because she wanted people to focus on the meaning of her words rather than um, like centering herself. So she was born on September 25th, 1953 in Hopkinsville, Kentucky. If you're wondering, this makes her a Libra sun, Sag moon, which is the opposite of my sun and moon. And I was emo and was like tearing up when I looked that up. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But the Sag moon, it makes so much sense because I was thinking of, um, and I think I mentioned this before, but my gender studies professor, um, like the director of my department was talking about how she's been at conferences with Bellux and that like hooks would get really annoyed after lectures. If the audience was asking her questions that she thought were like dumb or obvious and would be like, were you listening to me? And had just this like air of sass that I deeply relate to. Um, but I digress. So she grew up in the segregated South before going to undergrad at Stanford University. When she was 19, she started to write what would later become her first book called Ain't I a Woman, Black Women and Feminism, which was not published until 1981. So she started this book during her time in undergrad studying English and then later got a master's at University of Wisconsin and a PhD at UC Santa Cruz. So the title of her book um, was a continuation of her honoring like the lineage of Black women who she looked up to. And so the title comes from Sojourner Truth's 1851 speech. Um, For anyone who does not know, Sojourner Truth was 
born into slavery in 1797 and became a major voice of the slavery abolition movement. So um, I just wanted to read a small excerpt from the transcription of that speech, which uh, Jules will explain a little more about after, but I was going to say she wrote, but actually it's a speech. She did not write it. So she said, quote, that man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages or over mud puddles or gives me any best place. And ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. I've plowed and planted and gathered into barns and no man could heed me. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much and eat as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I've borne 13 children and seen most of all sold off to slavery. And when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? Um, so I just thought that was important context, although it is not directly related to bell hooks because it shows like the inspiration that she drew in this ongoing way that she would honor the black women who came before her and her solidarity with other black women and their lineage is clear throughout her body of work and comes across like really beautifully in her writings, how like deeply she felt that solidarity. Yeah. I just wanted to throw in um, kind of a tangent, but just like a historical fun fact about, or I don't know if it's fun, but it's an interesting fact um, about Sojourner Truth's speech. Um, so she actually never said the phrase, ain't I a woman? Um, and the version of her speech that was published and that most people are familiar with was transcribed by a white woman abolitionist and published more than 10 years after Truth actually gave the speech. And she basically put Truth's words into this like fake black dialect that was intended to make other white people feel more sympathy for what truth was saying. Um, obviously it was kind of misguided, but there was this other version of the speech that was transcribed by a different white abolitionist that was published a month after the speech, which doesn't include the, include the phrase, ain't I a woman? Um, I actually was looking into this more today and it actually doesn't even include the phrase, like, aren't I a woman? Like there's some differences between the speeches that are kind of interesting. Um, anyway, this doesn't really relate to bell hooks, but um, I also just wanted to mention it was only in the 1990s after Hooks's book was published with the title, Ain't I a Woman? that this historian named Nell Urban Painter discovered and kind of called attention to some of the errors in this version of the speech that most people know. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting that most of us are still taught the Ain't I a Woman version of the speech in school. Like I only learned about this a few years ago um, from another leftist, even though like this version has been debunked by a black woman academic, the older version is still kind of what's taught in mainstream education, which I think relates to some of Hooks's work on the educational system that we're going to talk about a little bit later today, but still a great speech and like really important ideas. I just think it's interesting that that's like something, you know, most people don't know and it's because a white woman transcribed it badly. Yeah, that's interesting. I knew that it was transcribed by a white woman and that there were like some language differences, but I didn't know that she like didn't specifically say that phrase. Um, so I learned something new today and it wasn't from my grad school class. It was from Jules. <laughs> the more you know. We love to see it. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so I think now with some of that context, we're going to start talking about some of her writing. 
So I thought a good place to start would be talking about her book called Feminism is for Everybody. And this work really speaks to her ability to make feminist theory accessible, which we'll be talking a lot more about later. But the way she was able to make theory so accessible is a huge strength of hers and part of what made her so popular. In the intro, she describes like the book she was trying to write and what she said was, I want to have in my hand a little book so that I can say, read this book, and it will tell you what feminism is, what the movement is about. I want to be holding in my hand a concise, fairly easy to read and understand book, not a long book, not a thick with hard to understand jargon book, but a straightforward, clear book, easy to read without being simplistic. And each chapter of the book is like kind of an overview of different feminist topics. So it ranges from like class struggle, beauty standards, um, she talks about like racism, proto-intersectionality, which we'll kind of talk about like her place in that in a little bit. Um, and also like liberating marriage and partnerships. So it's very like expansive of what feminism encompasses. And I would definitely recommend that for everyone, um, but especially folks who maybe haven't read her work before and are looking for a good place to start because you'll kind of get like a little taste of different things that she writes about. Hell yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited we're doing this episode because I know very little about Bell Hooks. Other than um, her book, Ain't I a Woman, um, kind of inspired by the falsely transcribed <laughs> uh, <laughs> speech from before. Um, so as Zoe said, this was published in 1981, and it really combines women's rights and black rights as an early understanding of intersectionality and how black women have specific issues that were not being covered by the broader women's liberation movement. Yeah, absolutely. I just wanted to add quickly, um, like what I was saying, uh, because it's very relevant to this app that although um, Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectionality in 1989, which is when a lot of people think that that concept like started, but it's something that black feminists have been talking about for many years before that using like various terminology and um, hooks and like Kambahi River Collective Statement were um, very like big amongst those like proto-intersectionality uh, analysis. Yeah, totally. Um, so she writes about how feminist issues didn't seem as important as the harsher, more brutal reality of racism. But in doing so, it was denying a part of themselves, a part that could claim womanhood. She wrote about how it was scary to think about sexism just being as oppressive as racism. So many black women hoped that liberation from racial oppression would be all that was necessary for them to be free. She quotes Sojourner Truth, the original author of Ain't I a Woman, um, and says, there is a great stir about colored men getting their rights, but not a word about the colored woman. And if colored men get their rights and not colored women theirs, you see the colored men will be masters over the women, and it will be just as bad as it was before. And Bell Hooks really highlights that sexist oppression was a real threat to the freedom of black women um, but of course, white women and the liberation movement that they created was extremely racist. This is still a continuous issue. Obviously, we all know the statistic that 53% of white women voted for Trump. And additionally, when black men were granted the right to vote, Hooks argued that, quote, 
Black activists defined freedom as gaining the right to participate as full citizens in American culture. They were not rejecting the value system of that culture. Consequently, they did not question the rightness of patriarchy. And she goes on to write, What had begun as a movement to free all black people from racist oppression became a movement with its primary goal, the establishment of black male patriarchy. That the black woman was victimized by sexist and racist oppression was seen as insignificant, for women's suffering, however great, could not take precedence over male pain. End quote. Similarly to why I love some other theorists we've covered, like Emma Goldman, I really love that Bell Hooks uses really plain language to outline the specific struggle of black women. And yeah, I highly recommend checking out Ain't I a Woman in its completion. Yeah, it's a really good book. Um, it's It was interesting reading this as a historian um, and specifically like as a historian who studies slavery. One of the things, like the first chapter, um, she gets into the history of enslavement in the United States. And one of the things that she talks about is the way that the normative enslaved person in, in histories, uh, which, are, which were especially before 1981 frequently written by white men, has been coded as male. So like, in other words, historians generally studied like enslaved men's experiences and then wrote about those experiences as like the slave experience. Um, luckily, as Laura mentioned, and as Zoe mentioned, this book was published in 1981 and like a lot has changed in 40 years. And especially black women historians have written a lot about what women experienced under slavery. Um, and a lot of that scholarship echoes what Hooks discusses in her first chapter, which again is like all about the experiences of enslaved women. So she was, just want to give her credit for, even though she's not a historian, she was really ahead of her time in many ways um, and ahead of the curve of like the historiography. And another thing that I really like about Ain't I Woman is that it just like hardcore dunks on white feminism. Yes. Karl um, <laughs> <laughs> Marx may have failed to predict the rise of the girl boss, but Bell Hooks certainly did not. <laughs> um, she writes about like how difficult it is for people to break out of structures and norms into which we've been socialized. And so like, for this reason, she says, mainstream white feminism has ended up replicating many of the problems that the society was supposed to be trying to change. So, um, you know, this includes, in her words, quote, denying the existence of Black women, writing feminist scholarship as if Black women are not part of the collective group of American women, or discriminating against Black women, as well as defining liberation using the terms of white capitalist patriarchy, equating liberation with gaining economic status and money power. And it's like just it's incredible to like read this again from like 1981 because it's exactly the same shit that we're talking about in 2022 like all the fucking time. Um, And yeah, I just wanted to we, we could go on we could do a whole episode about this book, but I just wanted to end the discussion of this particular book by reading a passage I really like where Bell Hooks defines feminism. She says, To me, feminism is not simply a struggle to end male chauvinism or a movement to ensure that women will have equal rights with men. It is a commitment to eradicating the ideology of domination that permeates Western culture on various levels, sex, race, and class, to name a few, and a commitment to reorganizing U.S. society so that the development of people, self-development of people, can take precedence over imperialism, economic expansion, and material desires. To be feminist in any authentic sense of the term is to want for all people, female and male, liberation from the sexist role, patterns, domination, and oppression. Breaking the binary. We love to see it. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah. I like 
gives me chills. The whole time working on this, I just was like tearing up slash being like, oh. yes, that noise was like my, so my great. chills. <laughs> so he's like shaking their shoulders. I'm trying to like show I'm having chills, but you can't see me. <laughs> Um, I also just wanted to talk briefly about Hooks's second major book of feminist theory, which is called Feminist Theory from Margin to Center. Um, so Ain't I a Woman was her first major theory book. And then this book expanded on a lot of those ideas, particularly solidifying her arguments against white feminism and feminism whose goal is to make women equal with men without challenging any other inequities or really questioning who we mean when we say women will be equal with men. Um, the title of the book refers to the idea that Black women's experiences were on the margins of mainstream feminism, while a truly radical feminism centers these experiences, like the experiences of the most oppressed women, and kind of takes that as a starting point for what feminism should be. Um, one of my favorite parts of this book is the second chapter, which focuses on the way feminism is often used to mean reform. Um, and again, this is an issue that was going on in the 1980s, and I think we are still dealing with in a different form today. Um, but basically, the reformist version of feminism, as opposed to a truly radical version of feminism, um, and how that was really far from what Black lesbian feminists had actually envisioned in critiquing patriarchy. Um, so in the beginning of this chapter, Hooks writes, quote, most people in the United States think of feminism or the more commonly used term women's lib as a movement that aims to make women the social equals of men. This broad definition popularized by the media and mainstream segments of the movement raises problematic questions. Since men are not equals in white supremacist capitalist patriarchal class structure, which men do women want to be equal to? Do women share a common vision of what equality means? Implicit in this simplistic definition of women's liberation is a dismissal of race and class as factors that, in conjunction with sexism, determine the extent to which an individual will be discriminated against, exploited, or oppressed. Women in lower class and poor groups, particularly those who are non-white, would not have defined women's liberation as women gaining social equality with men, since they are continually reminded in their everyday lives that all women do not share a common social status. Concurrently, they know that many males in their social groups are exploited and oppressed. Knowing that men in their groups do not have social, political, and economic power, they would not deem it liberatory to share their social status, end quote. Um, and later on in the chapter, she also writes, quote, some women fear the word feminism because they shun identification with any political movement, especially one perceived as radical. Most women are more familiar with negative perspectives on women's lib than the positive significations of feminism. It is this term's positive political significance and power that we must now struggle to recover and maintain, unquote. Um, so I think, like I said before, while the specifics of these types of problems have changed since Hooks wrote this book, it's still something that I encounter all the time. And I often find myself returning to this book um, and this chapter in particular to help understand what is behind people's rejection of feminism and other movements for gender equality. Um, I think both when it speaks to issues that are maybe being ignored or deprioritized by a feminist campaign and when it's like getting at issues within a movement and also when it speaks to this discomfort that a lot of people have around something perceived as radical. Um, and one other thing that I think this book 
does really well is talking about feminist arguments against work. Um, so for anyone who's interested in that, yes. this is also a great one to check out for those things. Maybe we should just have a bell hooks reading group. <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, that's a great idea. She wrote could, so much. Like, I was going to say, it could literally last <laughs> Exactly. That way we would never have to think about it. We'd just be like, next bell hooks. <laughs> True. 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 Well, next I wanted to talk, not, well, kind of about a specific book, but more just in general about her um, writing on masculinity. So she's written several books on masculinity, um, which is like a topic that I've been particularly interested in and taken a few classes on. And I specifically wanted to talk about a concept she calls psychological patriarchy. So she defines the term as the dynamic between those qualities deemed quote masculine and quote feminine in which half of our human traits are exalted while the other half is devalued. Both men and women participate in this tortured values system. Psychological patriarchy is a dance of contempt, a perverse form of connection that replaces true intimacy with complex covert layers of dominance and submission, collusion and manipulation. It is the unacknowledged paradigm of relationships that has suffused Western civilization, deforming both sexes and destroying the passionate bond between them. And also, of course, this quote is very... um, binary as kellen said these writings were things have changed and you know you can't always think about writing in terms of what we know now um so just wanted to put that out there so but this quote gets the way that feminine traits are defined in opposition to masculinity and vice versa and how this becomes psychologically ingrained and by her definition patriarchy is not merely a social phenomenon like we all often think of it but it's also a psychological one And patriarchy operates as a system in which psychological warfare is implemented to maintain male dominance. So although this primarily oppresses women and people of other marginalized genders, it also oppresses men by denying them access to what Hooks referred to as their whole emotional selves. So psychological patriarchy, as she defines it, is an integral part of all institutions and organizations, including religions, education system, healthcare system, the nuclear family system, ever heard of it? And (laughs) she also wrote that psychological patriarchy involves, quote, the repression of all emotions except fear, the destruction of individual willpower and the repression of thinking whenever it departs from authority figures way of thinking. Yeah, this is really interesting, Zoe. I really like this. Um, I was just wondering, is this is this quote from The Will to Change, which is like it The is. Will to Change Men, Masculinity, and Love? Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay, cool. I haven't read any of her work specifically on masculinity, but I'm, I'm definitely interested. Um, my man partner and I have been talking a lot about gender lately, and I'm wondering if this would be like a good book for us to read together. Um, so we, we've been talking about doing like a capital book club, so maybe we could inject some bell hooks in there to mix it up I actually just texted him we were doing our episode on bell hooks this week I think we should add her to our reading list and he said yes absolutely bell hooks has bangers so gotta love bell it. Hooks does have bangers I think this is good I actually also read it in conjunction with a man um because I feel that like yes it's a self-reflective book for men also like they need us to guide them um <laughs> Just kidding. Whatever. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's good. Of and course they do. <laughs> I know. Something that also um, I really liked about it is that there were things that 
I hadn't thought of in terms of ways that like when men aren't acting in the way that we are like taught men should act, even as like people who really understand gender and feminism, there's still things that can be like jarring if men Mm. are like, if like cis men are taking on what we deem as like more feminine traits, like wanting to like talk about how they're feeling a lot. Like it's just perceived in such a different way. And like, I know that, but just the way she wrote about it, I feel like was also like introspective for like me to think about like the men in my life. I love that. Okay. So next wanted to talk about teaching to transgress. So bell hooks did a lot of writing on uh, critical and feminist pedagogical work. One of the first pieces that I read by her that I really connected with was um, one of the chapters from teaching to transgress called theory as liberatory practice. Um, the full title is Teaching to Trans Education as the Practice of Freedom. And that talks about her take on pedagogy. She talks heavily about the inspiration that she got from Paolo Freire, the author of Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which we read in our reading group on patreon.com slash season of bitch. And he wrote in, <laughs> um, but Curry wrote an endorsement that's on like the back of her book, which I just thought was like a very touching exchange. And his um, endorsement says, quote, after reading Teaching to Transgress, I'm once again struck by Bell Hook's never ending, unquiet energy, an energy that makes her radical and loving. Yeah, people might also remember from our reading group that Frary briefly cites Hooks' work in Pedagogy of the Oppressed as well. Um, And I agree, it's really cool that they had this dialogue about educational methods that you can see across both of their work. Yeah, she also actually wrote about, um, they met in person before, and she uh, kind of gave him a hard time and was like, your work like lacks um, intersectional, like, intersectionality or like intersectional analysis and he was like no yeah that's fair like he like took it well (laughs) you're right thank you (laughs) yeah but like they had a lot of respect for each other and like had that kind of relationship and I just like yeah find that very like touching I don't know so in theory as liberatory practice Hooks talks about writing theory from a place of personal experience rather than from like an ivory tower position. And she talks about creating theory from the places of struggle and pain and using theory as a mode for, and using theory as a mode for naming and healing pain. She specifically writes about the ways in which black women are accused of divisiveness for bringing up their blackness when in feminist spaces, and then also for bringing up womanhood when in black spaces. And so Hooks wrote that she often would avoid bringing up certain topics because she didn't want to see be seen as like, quote, spoiling a good time. And she said that drawing attention to race and racism are often seen as a disruption to sisterhood and solidarity. Um, and on that, she wrote, quote, I'm grateful to the many people who dare to create theory from the location of pain and struggle, who courageously expose wounds to give us their experience to teach and guide as a means to chart new theoretical journeys. Their work is liberatory. It not only enables us to remember and recover ourselves, it charges and challenging challenges us to renew our commitment to an active, inclusive feminist struggle. Yeah, I can really see why you relate to this, Zoe. Um, it reminds me of some of the stuff you've been telling me about, like, your classes, like your philosophy class, for example, where you, it seems like you feel like you're, like, butting oh, heads with people who are just, like, 
up their own asses about theory for theory's sake while you're like studying social work because it's more important to like put theory into action on the ground than it is to like sit around and talk about it in seminar rooms or like even worse on Twitter. (laughs) True. Okay. I'm blushing because I feel seen. Love you, Kellen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I do send my co-host rants sometimes when I'm in this philosophy class on Marxist and feminist theory, um, surrounded by a lot of theory bros. And if any of you are listening, which I doubt you are, because I don't even think you listen to me talking class enough to know who I am. Um, <laughs> yes, I talk about you outside of class and I don't like you. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, it's funny because someone in the class who is not a man, like asked me about the podcast. And um, so maybe they're listening. And if you are, <laughs> you're discluded from what I just said. <laughs> But anyway, um, then last fall, I read this book in full for a class I took on feminist pedagogy and um, just wanted to go over some more concepts from the book overall, which, um, as Kellen said about, like, some of her other work, we could do an entire episode on, like, radical pedagogies. So I'm just going to try not to go into too much detail, but I want to share some highlights that are exemplary of the book. So in the introduction, she talks about her interest in critical pedagogy and how it stemmed from her experience going from an all-Black segregated school to being bused to mostly white schools when integration was happening. And she said, quote, that shift from beloved all-Black schools to white schools where Black students were seen as interlopers, as not really belonging, taught me the difference between education as the practice of freedom and education that merely strives to reinforce dominance. Yeah, one other thing I wanted to mention about this book that I think relates to what you were just saying, Zoe, um, Hooks also talks a little bit about respectability politics in mainstream education and basically how academic institutions tend to appropriate Black feminist knowledge in a way that is invested in de-radicalizing it. Um, And I think her writing on this was really prescient in that it called out an issue that I think has only gotten more extreme in the three decades since this was published. Um, And I wanted to just read a quick excerpt from chapter seven of this book, which critiques the sort of like progressive, inclusive vision of academia that ignores very real inequities that still exist. She writes, quote, many of the Black women who were actively engaged with feminist movement were talking about racism in a sincere attempt to create an inclusive movement, one that would bring white and Black women together. Most white women dismissed us as, quote unquote, too angry, refusing to reflect critically on the issues raised. It seems at times as though white feminists working in the academy have appropriated discussions of race and racism while abandoning the effort to construct a space for sisterhood, a space where they could examine and change attitudes and behavior towards Black women and all women of color. With the increasing institutionalization and professionalization of feminist work, white women have assumed positions of power. Now Black women are placed in the position of serving white female desire to know more about race and racism to master the subject, unquote. Wow. It's just like, so it's wild how real this still is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, as someone who was like involved in the academy for a long time, I think she really saw um, how some of these issues that seemed unimportant to a lot of people then were going to become even more uh, deeply entrenched today. 
Yeah, totally. And um, another thing that she wrote about in the book was the lack of access to truth and how that affects education, which feels particularly relevant um, in the last few years, although it, of course, has been for a long time, but she's kind of like a proto fake newser um, or anti fake newser. And she wrote about the mainstream lies that racism no longer exists and that men are now becoming dominated by women. Thanks to the feminist movement, you know, things that we've heard, of course, and particularly she said, quote, so it goes, all men, especially black men must pull together as in the Clarence Thomas hearings to support and reaffirm patriarchal domination. Add this to the widely held assumptions that blacks, other minorities and white women are taking jobs from white men and that people are poor and unemployed because they want to be. And it becomes most evident that part of our contemporary crisis is created by a lack of meaningful access to truth. And then um, the last thing that I want to talk about from teaching to transgress is the way that Bell Hooks wrote about um, women and gender studies, which yeah, I obviously bring up gender studies a lot. I feel like a lot of people don't know what it is. And so I felt like this was important to talk about. So her stance was that gender studies has the potential for more liberatory classrooms since it was born out of feminist activists fighting to allow women into academia and how that makes gender studies very different from most of the other academic fields in that they did not come about due to social action. They came about due to um, wealthy cis white men who, as Kellen said, want to like sit in a seminar room and just talk out of their asses. And so, of course, it is still within academia. And so that is an impressive institution. And Hooks absolutely recognized that. And she also wrote about the importance of feminist theory being written in an accessible way in order to stay true to the lineage of the feminist movement. So she wrote, quote, imagine what a change has come about within feminist movements when students, most of whom are female, come to gender studies classes and read what they are told is feminist theory, only to feel that what they are reading has no meaning, cannot be understood, or when understood in no way connects to lived realities beyond the classroom. As feminist activists, we might ask ourselves, of what use is feminist theory that assaults the fragile psyche of women struggling to throw off patriarchy's oppressive yoke? She goes to talk, she goes on to talk about how gender studies um, becomes assimilated into academia, of course, as, as um, you know, institutions do is force people to assimilate. And um, on that, she said, clearly a feminist theory that can do this may function to legitimize gender studies and feminist scholarship in the eyes of the ruling patriarchy, but it undermines and subverts feminist movements. Perhaps it is the existence of the most highly visible feminist theory that compels us to talk about the gap between theory and practice. However, we cannot ignore the dangers it poses to feminist struggle, which must be rooted in a theory that informs, shapes, and makes feminist practice possible. That's so good. Yeah, I really like all of that, Zoe. This also makes me think just about, this is a bit of a digression, but like makes me think about ethnic studies departments, which were also created only after a lot of organization on the parts of like minority students. So like mm-hmm. I'm thinking of a really, a very famous example, which is the College of Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State University. Um, and that was created after these like massive student protests in 1968 and 69, which called for the establish- establishment of new departments um, like American Indian Studies, Asian American Studies, 
Black studies and Chicano studies. Um, the protests were led by student groups, which included the Third World Liberation Front and the Black Student Union. And like SFSU is just just like one example I bring up because the protests were massive and also like massively successful. Um, and the point is just that these departments have in their history, like a lineage of subversion. Um, but at the same time, as Hooks talked about, there is this like countervailing pressure to integrate them into the liberal academic establishment and to make them politically non-threatening. And like, when I think about the most radical classroom spaces I was in as an undergrad, I definitely think about like the African-American studies classes I took. Um, the only gender studies class I took was a gender psychology class, which is like, extremely whack it, it was like are girls and boys different let's oh, look at no. brains um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's a side note anyway this is all to say that I just I think the tension she's exploring here is super interesting and definitely something that like politically left people in academia tend to struggle with as well yeah totally yeah, um, I wanted to talk a little bit um, as we're getting towards the end about some of Hooks's later work. Um, so she continued writing books throughout the early 2000s, especially focused on masculinity and the way that interpersonal and kind of like local community dynamics reflected broader social and cultural issues. Um, but after around 2004, 2005 or so, um, she stopped publishing as much book length work, although she still wrote quite a lot, like we've been talking about. She was a prolific writer um, and she published a book very recently in 2018. Um, but she continued to be a really important academic and kind of public intellectual force. Um, and I actually came to her work in maybe kind of unusual way. Um, but it was when I was in college in the early 2010s, and it was this time when a specific form of, I guess what I might now call like think piece feminism was having a really big moment. Um, and a lot of this centered on readings of pop culture that placed basically like famous celebrity women, like actors, musicians, and other very wealthy famous people as the paragons of feminism. Um, I chose not to go back and try to find any of these old pieces, mostly because I didn't want to do too much psychic damage to myself. And also, smart. honestly, most of the, yeah. <laughs> um, I think also most of the places that publish this work have like folded since then, which is kind of sad. Um, their archives probably don't exist anymore. But anyway, I'm guessing most listeners will kind of know what I'm talking about. But it was articles with titles like, don't like Megan Trainer. here's why that's sexist, or like people on Twitter making fun of this woman CEO or everything that's wrong with society. Um, yeah, well, just just as a, another side note, um, Megan Trainer does suck, and I'm sorry <laughs> that we are no longer a feminist podcast. <laughs> I've ruined it for everyone, um, but that's true. true. Yeah, thank God it's no longer 2014 or we would all be summarily canceled, but Yes, I agree. Um, I I think like honestly, the reason why Megan Trainer came to mind is because that was a good example of someone where I was like, this like clearly me not liking this music does not mean that I'm not a feminist, and this is so ridiculous. But um, <laughs> even though I found a lot of this stuff like 
really annoying and like focusing on the wrong things as someone who considers myself a feminist and also who loves pop culture I like couldn't help but follow this stuff and I was trying to figure out like where does this fit into my feminism um and I think bell hooks realized that this was something that a lot of young people in academia were kind of getting sucked into and that this was a good access point to reach people so she wrote articles about how celebrity worship culture is very disconnected from feminist culture Um, One example, in 2016, she wrote an op-ed in The Guardian with the headline, Beyonce's Lemonade is Capitalist Money-Making at Its Best. She wrote, quote, in the world of fantasy feminism, there are no class, sex, and race hierarchies that break down simplified categories of women and men, no call to challenge and change systems of domination, no emphasis on intersectionality. In such a simplified worldview, women gaining the freedom to be like men can be seen as powerful. But it is a false construction of power as so many men, especially Black men, do not possess actual power. But it is a false construction of power as so many men, especially Black men, do not possess actual power. And indeed, it is clear that Black male cruelty and violence towards Black women is a direct outcome of patriarchal exploitation and oppression, end quote. Um, And, you know, Hooks obviously got a lot of hate for criticizing incredibly popular cultural figures like literally Beyonce, but I think she also did a really good job of pointing out how representation is not liberation and really challenging people who were enjoying this type of pop feminist work, which I think has some merits in and like has its place. but like challenging people to think more deeply about what was speaking to them in this work and what could they actually do to challenge the oppressive forces they were feeling that this type of work was like speaking to in their experience. Um, yeah, I just wanted to add, like, I'm not saying that Bell Hooks copied me, but I would like to say <laughs> that in 2015 like, um, or 2014, I took a class on like Fridays of Feminist Theory and um I did write my final paper um, applying feminist theory to um, some of Beyonce's work and looking at um, some similar themes. And like, I'm not saying that she read my paper, but I'm not saying she didn't. I don't know. Anyway, also, I think, like, another sort of major aspect of this think piece feminism thing that I'm positing right now um, was this trend of mostly younger women taking, like, bad dating experiences that they had or experiences of workplace sexism and theorizing, like, a broader point about society out of that personal experience. Um, And I think, again, like, some of that work was really thoughtful, and I think work like that definitely has its place. Um, But a lot of the digital media industry at that time was just really focused on people sharing, like, an individual personal experience that often was very traumatizing um, without really having any theory behind it, or oftentimes any time for the writer themselves to actually process it. Um, It was kind of this industry that was like encouraging young women to like put their trauma out there in think pieces very quickly. Um, And a lot of this work kind of contributed to like a carceral girl boss feminism that was really focused on the problems of young white college educated straight cis women and pretty much ignoring anyone else and calling that feminism. Um, And like some of this work was written by queer and trans women, women of color, women who were the first in their family to go to college. But 
overall the publishing landscape was like very much forcing everyone into this box where the worst problem you will face is like a male coworker taking credit for your idea in a meeting, um, which is bad, but is not the worst thing that most women will face in their lives. Um, that reminds me of in um, the like Kimmy Schmidt's show. One of the lines that I still just think is so funny. I don't even remember the context, but it's like the rich white woman in the show just has like a minor inconvenience and goes, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to any woman ever. <laughs> and like, <laughs> Yeah, I think about that all the time. Anyway. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I feel like it's really funny how Tina Fey is like really good at capturing that, but then also like sometimes is exemplifies that- it too. Yep. <laughs> but, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I guess like I think the the bigger point here is like when this sort of like digital media think piece landscape started to be capitalized on by more powerful older women in the corporate world. Um, And probably the most famous example from this time is Sheryl Sandberg, who was a Facebook executive who wrote the book Lean In. Um, And Hooks did not let this go by without comment. She wrote articles about the issues with Sandberg's corporate feminism. Um, For example, in 2013, she wrote, quote, Sandberg's definition of feminism begins and ends with the notion that it's all about gender equality within the existing social system. From this perspective, the structures of imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy need not be challenged. And she makes it seem that privileged white men will eagerly choose to extend the benefits of corporate capitalism to white women who have the courage to, quote unquote, lean in. It almost seems as if Sandberg sees women's lack of perseverance as more the problem than systemic inequality. Sandberg effectively uses her race and class power and privilege to promote a narrow definition of feminism that obscures and undermines visionary feminist concerns, unquote. Hell yeah. Once again, dunking. Yeah. Just corporate feminism. Once again, would just like to add, um, I don't support book burning. I did once burn a copy of Lean In. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) I I don't support book burning unless it's for known lib and girl boss. I think book burning is fine if the book is bad. I'll say (laughs) I I want everyone to know I did not purchase that copy of Lean In. It wasn't mine. It was actually a friend of mine. And I was like, we're going to burn it. Yeah. Amazing. That is feminism in my Inspired opinion. by Bell Hooks, she would approve. I'm positive. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know. It was interesting to me thinking about this because I even though this was like what, I don't know, like 10 years ago, I think like the landscape of younger feminism has really changed in that like most younger feminists kind of inherently find corporate feminism pretty sketchy now. Um, But at the time, there weren't really perspectives challenging corporate feminism in mainstream media. And Hooks was one of the first prominent feminist voices, or at least one of the first that I saw to directly critique this. Um, And I guess I just think like her work and the way that she continued to put theory into an accessible form in the public eye is just a really good model of how you can continue to intervene in public discourse in this targeted way um, and how she was able to bring new people into this deeper understanding of radical thought, which is very cool and great. Yeah. And again, I think it speaks to her accessibility because she was willing to kind of speak the language of whatever landscape she was in. 
I also just have yeah. to say my sister at my sister no longer has a boss. She is her own boss, which is the best possible way to girl boss. Um, <laughs> but um, when she had to work for a major uh, cycling company in the United States, uh, the women of this company like put out a, a survey to see like what book should we read for our like women's group our feminism group and so my sister like texted me and she was like what do you know about these books and I don't remember what I ended up telling her about like what one I thought was best unfortunately because I was so struck by the fact that lean in was on there and I was like Jess just make sure <laughs> that it is not this one but it literally was like that was the one that ended up getting voted for. And I was like, what? What? Girl what are we talking love lean about? In. My grandma gave me lean in for Christmas one year. I have not read it, wow. but she did <sighs> give it to me. I just I thought well, if that you need help burning it, I'm an expert. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, if you want to support just a group of girl bosses. <laughs> gatekeeping and gaslighting our way <laughs> through life um you can go to patreon.com slash season of the bitch uh we're also at season of the b on twitter and instagram you can email us at season of the b at gmail.com wherever you're listening subscribe if it's possible to rate and review rate and review us but only if you say good things Woo. um yeah i think that about covers it anything else we want to add y'all I forget love you. <laughs> love you. Love, love you. you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Season of the bitch. Oh.